Hi, welcome to Cinema Critique. I'm Kobe Davenport. This week's episode is on 2019's Little Women, and I actually have a guest this week. You want to say hi, Jack? Hello. Okay, thank you. Thank um, you. So, Little <laughs> Women is your favorite movie, right? Yes. Um, I know we're about to get into it, but do you want to give a brief sort of explanation of why you love it? I think that as much as it is a heartwarming tale, um, I think that so much of it, because it was written um, at the time where it takes place, um, I believe it was written in the 1860s, and it takes place, um, I believe, right after the Civil War. Uh, it, I think that so much of it holds to be like an anthropological account of what time was like then uh, for many classes of people and how, um, how people interacted at that time. And I think that it's just, it just stays very true to how human interactions occurred then, and I like seeing the comparison of how they occurred then versus how they occur now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how many times did you see it in theaters? Uh, well, in theaters is different. In theaters, it was, oh, golly, uh, like four or five. Okay. I've now seen it like nine, ten times. I have lost count, which is frightening. It's more scary than knowing the number, I think. Okay. And which sister are you? <laughs> well, that depends. Um, I personally think I'm Amy, and my personality, like my Myers Briggs type, okay. is Amy. But I've been told that I'm Joe by um, traitors like like you, really. I I think you are Joe. You're like a mixture of Joe and Amy. Yeah, I just I, I think I just want to be Florence Pugh, which is a whole other thing. Uh, which <laughs> sister are you, Kobe? Which one am I? I I feel like I'm Joe, but I don't feel like Joe. I feel you know? like Joe wouldn't feel like Joe, you know? That's fair. Would you agree? Do you think that's right? I think you're Joe. I, Yeah. I see you as... What if it's like Fred Vaughn? Um, I see you as... Yeah, I think Joe. Although I do think that you have a little bit of Beth in you. Interesting. I appreciate that. Okay. <laughs> Um, before we get into everything about this movie, I'll give it a brief introduction. So, Little Women came out in December of 2019 and was written and directed by Greta Gerwig. It is the seventh film adaptation, however, there have also been multiple TV shows, limited series, Broadway shows, operas, and animations about the story, so this is a well-traveled subject, which this movie really plays into, and we'll talk about that later on. Um, it stars Saoirse Ronan, Emma Watson, Florence Pugh, and Eliza Scanton. Um, and it also has Meryl Streep and Timothy Chalamet. So it has a very accomplished cast along with it. Uh, it was nominated for seven Oscars and one costume design. So, yeah. Um, we'll get right into it. Um, you want to start off talking about the directing style, Jack? I love it. Um, I was, okay, so I was actually very confused the first time I watched it because I hadn't read the book yet. I've since read the book. I'm not a big fan. But um, I was confused because I thought, um, oh, wait, are spoilers allowed to happen? Yes, you can talk about spoilers. Okay, so, because um, I was going to say a big one. Um, when Beth died, because yeah. um, they basically, when they did basically the same sequence of events twice when they did mm -hmm. it um in the past and the present when she had recovered from scarlet fever and then when she passed away um the first time it happened i thought it was like a dream sequence of what she wished happened and then the second time was um was what actually happened that being said i think that i think that the events of the story don't necessarily entirely matter in what order they come. And I think it's more important to see them juxtapose with one another than it is to see them in a sequential, um, chronological sense. 
What do you think, Copes? So, also, just right up. <laughs> uh, I would agree. I feel like the directing, especially upon multiple viewings, becomes very impactful. Um, like you said, Beth's death is a scene that's incredibly impactful, especially from a directing standpoint, because of the stark contrast in the style where when she's recovered from Scarlet's fever, it's a very dynamic shot. They have like these like quick cuts. It's like zooming in on her hand, like grabbing the banister and everything. Whereas when Beth dies and um, Joe is coming down the stairs, it's instead just very still and quiet. And that like contrast, it's like, whereas in the book, different scenes are happening like chronologically instead it's being able to compare the past and the present and like the innocence of their childhood compared to like where they're at now and i feel like it's really effective uh sort of like you said though i think that the movie is not friendly to people that don't know the story um in like the beginning like i was just confused like straight up when they started like moving all over the place uh i just sort of wasn't sure what was happening yeah, and I know a lot of people miss, and I didn't see it. I saw it the first time, and then the second time I missed it. But, like, it does say at the bottom of the screen, like, seven years mm-hmm. earlier. And I just, like, missed that the second yeah. time I saw it. Like, where'd, where'd she go? Like, I know it was there. Like, that I kept up with. What I didn't keep up with was when they then cut back to the present. Because I assumed what they were doing was one of those things where it's, like, you start in the future and then go back to the past to show everything up till that point. And so yeah. then, like, when she, like, goes up to her room or whatever to, like, write... And then, like, wakes up and she's, like, back in New York and, like, Frederick drops the books off at her room. I was like, wait, so is she in the apartment or her house? And I was just, com- like, it did not even occur to me. It had cut back to the present. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it is something that you do have to get used to while mm-hmm. watching. I do think, though, that part of it is that I think there are two sides to it. Because I think, number one, I don't think that... I think, obviously, I think the story is incredibly important to it, but I think that so much of what uh, Louise May Alcott did was she was exploring the relationships of mm-hmm. these people, and so rather than it be, or of these characters, and so rather than um, the actual events happening, which are important, obviously, because they're, they're what make up the story, I think those are important, but I think more so it's important to learn about the characters. I think a lot of it's a character study. And then the other side of it is, I think that part of what Greta Ger- Gerwig was trying to do is she was trying to kind of shock viewers into being engaged and interested in the story and making sure that their attention is, you know, kept at a peak. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I mean, this is something that you sort of looked into in terms of like the script and everything. But I do think that Greta Gerwig does a really good job of making the movie really approachable and dynamic, like just the movement that she is adding in and like the little like interactions that she's written that just make all of the characters feel so alive and like then like this very unique directing style sort of adds onto that and in the movie itself just feels very alive yeah and one thing that i love about it is that she is establishing these characters relationships and these characters personalities in such a fluid like nuanced way where it doesn't feel like the camera is like now look at this but rather you're like you're in the room and looking around and just realizing these relationships become developed because it is a story that takes place over many many years yeah so i have a note written down here and it's just under things jack doesn't like and the one thing written is the letters being read you want to explain that one (laughs) yep Um, do you want want to explain it (laughs) so I don't use any words? (laughs) Sure. So basically, whenever in the movie there's a letter or something else that has been written that the 
audience needs to know what it says, the characters will read it. But instead of most movies where it's just like a voiceover, instead it cuts to them standing in a room staring directly at the camera. And like, that's how they're told. And I'm like kind of okay with it. Like it made me uncomfortable, I guess, but like, I'm okay with it. But like Jack hates it with like a burning passion. (laughs) Well, okay. So it's anytime that there's correspondence. And so it happens three times. Frederick uh, wrote a letter that was, um, that he put in the books that he gave with Joe um, Joe does it when she writes a letter to Mr. Dashwood, I believe, and Mr. Dashwood does it when he writes a letter in response to Joe. And each time, like, I just feel like the direction of the movie is so brilliant and nuanced, and it just feels so, it feels so much more, like I was saying earlier, it feels like you're there with them. Like, it doesn't feel like you're watching a movie, it feels like you're, like, being accepted into this family to watch as they grow. And as soon as you get to one of those things, it just, I feel like it takes you out of the story and it just feels like, oh, like, this is very, like, like, it's, like, it just feels like it's not, it doesn't feel like it fits in with it, you know? And I love it. I love the entire movie. But each time one of those things happens, like, the first time I was very uncomfortable. And now when I see them, like, I just, like, giggle, which, like, is never the point of those, of those um, shots, you know? I would agree. I think the problem with it is that the movie is so quick for a lot of it. That then taking the cut to, like, a still shot of, like, a person just sitting in a room staring directly at you reading. Just, like, it's almost unnerving. Like, it just does not feel natural in the course of the movie. Right. And, like, one thing is, like, I already, like, I'm not I'm not the biggest fan of eye contact. And then you're <laughs> forcing me into it in a movie and I can't escape it because it's a big screen, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's very true. <laughs> okay. So one thing we've talked a lot about is the writing. We've sort of mentioned it. What is it about the characters in this movie that makes them so good? Um, well, part of it is like you were saying, there have been so many adaptations of it that these characters have gotten to kind of come into their own and they've gotten to grow on the previous attempts. And one thing that I read is that apparently until this movie, no one liked Amy as a character. They all just thought that she was spoiled, but Florence Pugh gave her dimension. And I think that's the biggest part of it is I think that because it is such a incredible cast, um, it, the actors took their roles and took all of the source material. So they took Louisa May, um, they took that source material, they took that stimulus and then they took, uh, Greta, Greta Gerwig's incredible direction. And then um, they were able to really internalize how they thought those, how they could make these characters into people. And that's how they did it. They portrayed them as people rather than as characters that they were playing. I would agree. I think that in general, the characters themselves, they all feel very real. And even like, that's why we sort of started this off with the question of like, oh, which one are you? Because like everyone can find traits of themselves in these characters And I feel like they are a really accurate representation of people, and especially, like, family, where not everyone is the same, not everyone even likes each other all the time, except they still have this connection to each other. And I feel like that's really powerful in this movie, Um, whereas that's normally overlooked in a lot of other cases. Yeah. Um, So, so Jack, I have to ask you a question, because this is something I actually did not like about the movie. What are your thoughts on the actresses playing their younger selves? I think, um, well, I like it, and I think that I like it when it's done well. I think Florence Pugh playing her younger self is just in- 
incredible because she is embodying the spirit and the energy of a young person. Um, and I think that she does it like no other because I think that it gets, I think it's very realistic the way that she does it. Um, that being said, I also like it because, um, it's the, I, I see it as the way that they saw themselves when that they were that age. No one ever thinks of themselves as a kid. You always hear little kids saying, no, I'm a big kid. I'm a grown up." Um, and I feel like that's kind of what was going on. Like not only were they kind of forced to grow up young because their mother, like always had them helping others, but if like it, I think that is really truly how they saw themselves in the world around them. Like they thought that they were like these huge personalities in a small home. I never thought about that interpretation. That's really interesting. I will say though, it's kind of funny because I feel like the person who the most ruins the child acting for me is Florence Pugh because yeah. Okay. So a few reasons. One, the only thing different is, like, she has the bangs over her face, right? <laughs> Except she's supposed to be, like, 13. And, like, with Beth, it's not necessarily a problem because Beth is never with anyone else. But Amy, there's, like, a scene where she's in a classroom and the kids are, like, eight years old. <laughs> yeah. And then you have Florence Pugh, who's, like, a full adult, sitting there pretending to be the same age. And, like, I cannot get over it. Like, I'm watching it and it just, it can't feel real because I'm seeing this adult woman with, like, a purposefully high-pitched voice talking to literal children. Well, and she does have a very deep voice. She does. Um, but, I no, I mean, the reason that it doesn't bother me is because I think that her acting never feels like acting. Like, it always feels like, and, and, no, and no matter what movie it is, she feels mm-hmm. like, it feels like she's becoming whatever role she's portraying. And so, even when she's playing a young person, just her inflection, and specifically the scene right before um, Joe and Meg go to the, um, go to the theater and she's upset that they won't take them and she mm-hmm. has basically a hissy fit yeah. like i feel like that is something that and i feel like it's why so many people identify with her is that is a reaction that we have all seen in young people and that's a reaction that we've all had when we were young people like that when mm-hmm. she um when she says like i don't want cords beth and when she like basically says to beth like talk to the hand and walks by and she's yeah. like don't look at me <laughs> like We've all done that. Like, we all know that we've seen that before. Meg, please, can I come? Please, can I come? I'm sorry, dear, but you weren't okay. Can't go, Amy, so don't be a baby and whine about it. Oh, I've been shut up here, and I never get to go anywhere. Beth is her piano, and I'm so lonely. I can teach you chords. I don't want chords, Beth. I want to go No, I think you'd hate to poke yourself in where you're not wanted. I'm sorry, my sweet, but Joe's right. No. Next time. Come, Meg, stop petting her. Please. That's why I just think like things like that are things that other actors may not necessarily consider. But I think that's why I'm like comfortable with her portraying such a young person is because she does it like with so many nuances and inflections um, that uh, that I don't know that other actors would necessarily portray. Yeah, she definitely leans into the absurdity of children. Yeah, where like I feel like she is the only one who does feel like she's going all out into being a child. And she really acts like a child. And I'm thinking that maybe part of my problem is that because the others aren't necessarily trying as hard to be children. Or, I mean, to be fair, Sorceronin and Emma Watson are playing teenagers, which is slightly different. But, Mm -hmm. like, Florence Pugh is the only one who's ever going to that extreme. And I feel like just in the context of the others, it feels ridiculous. It does. I think, though, that 
one thing that's nice about it is that because of Louisa May Alcott's dialogue that she wrote in the book and the mm-hmm. relationships that she established, and then with Greta Gerwig's writing, I don't know if you've seen the script, but they have hyphens anytime they're supposed to uh, interrupt each other. And the actors describe it as like Greta Gerwig understands this dialogue as like a symphony. Uh, and like she knows exactly when lines are supposed to come in to make it sound very natural. And because of those lines and because of the, the chemistry that all the actors have, it does feel like they're young siblings all relating in like a family when they're children, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, symphony is a great word to explain it. Um, one thing when it comes to the acting that I feel is really impactful about this movie is the monologues. Uh, they're kind of a lot in this movie. You know, there's like a lot of them. Um, Would you like an example? <laughs> sure. Go for it, Jack. Thank you. Well, I'm not a poet. I am just a woman. And as a woman, there's no way for me to make my own money, not enough to earn a living or to support my family. And if I had my own money, which I don't, that money would belong to my husband the moment we got married. If we had children, they would be his, not mine. They would be his property. So don't sit there and tell me that marriage isn't an economic proposition because it is. It may not be for you, but most certainly is for me. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think that sounds like her. I literally think that sounds like her. I think you it kind of does. Like, it because does. It we'll play it in compare. We'll see. Well, I'm not a poet. I'm just a woman. And as a woman, there's no way for me to make my own money. Not enough to earn a living or to support my family. And if I had my own money, which I don't, that money would belong to my husband the moment we got married. And if we had children, they would be his, not mine. They would be his property. So don't sit there and tell me that marriage isn't an economic proposition because it is. It may not be for you, but it most certainly is for me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I feel like the reason, though, these are so effective is because almost the opposite of the letters, where it feels like those are like sort of devoid of emotion and are like blatantly addressing the audience. These are, like, a way for the characters to address the audience with, like, their complete emotion, but, like, also just, like, have it fit into the story, you know? So, like... They all... Yeah, go ahead, sorry. I feel like the one, at least to me, that, like, stands out the most is Joe's like, monologue to her mom about how, like, she's, like, she thinks she's in love with Teddy, and, um, I don't know. Like, it's just so powerful, like, that scene especially where you can just see her sort of raw emotion bleeding in as she's, like, crying... It's, like, a very effective tool to be able to, like, show the audience exactly what she's feeling without having her, like, tell the audience because I feel like they're written in a way that feels, like, very natural in the context of the story. Whereas other times, other movies or books or whatever will sort of have monologues that come out of nowhere. I just, I just feel, I just feel like women, they, they have minds. And they have souls, as well as just hearts. And they've got ambition, and they've got talent, as well as just beauty. And I'm so sick of people saying that that love is just all a woman is fit for. I'm so sick of it. But I'm I'm so lonely. Yeah, and I feel like because of the close-knit nature of the family in the story, it is. It makes sense for them to have just kind of these stream of consciousness mm-hmm. conversations with one another. And so anytime it goes into, I mean, really, like, 
that's a soliloquy. We're getting an insight into mm-hmm. how she's thinking. Those are really her thoughts. And it, it, she's saying it to her mother. She's saying it to Marmy. But it's very much just the, the, that's exactly what she's thinking. And specifically with Joe, there's no filter. So she's just saying whatever comes to her mind. And I think that is just a brilliant way of writing in that we can where we can experience a soliloquy and not feel like, oh, this feels very theater, very musical theater. But mm-hmm. this just feels like we're, we're getting an insight into what they're thinking as a part of a conversation. Yeah, and especially, I hadn't realized this, I'm sure you know this now, but uh, Greta Gerwig, Gerwig wrote Florence Pugh's monologue about an economic proposition that you just recited. And to me, <laughs> the fact that I watched the movie and just did not even realize that she wrote that as, a par- as opposed to it being in the book is crazy. Oh, it's incredible. And that idea of an economic proposition comes up multiple times in it and it just it feels like it's so like beautifully ingrained in it and i think that's part of what greta gerwig does very well in it she highlights the uh, she highlights certain themes that haven't necessarily been touched on and that's her adaptation Mm -hmm. she stays very still uh, very true to the story she stays very true to the the feeling behind it and the energy behind it and her adaptation is just bringing a new light on it, but it's just shining a new light on something that's already existent. She doesn't try and embellish on something that's already a masterpiece. I agree. And um, I think we need to get to the whole idea of this adaptation versus all the others in a minute. But first, I need to say the two things I don't like about the acting in this movie, and those things are Emma Watson and Bob Odenkirk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, Emma Watson is... She's... It feels like she's not trying that hard while simultaneously really trying too hard. Like she as some in some scenes she has like a like American accent. But most of them she does not. Especially when she's like crying to John. Yeah, she's just that's like, the like she's like just skipping the letter R entirely. <laughs> like I yeah, no, like agreed. I don't mean to waste your money, but I can't resist when I see Sally buying all she wants and pitying me because I don't. I try to be contented, but it is hard. And I'm tired of being poor. Um, And I think it's so funny because all four of the sisters have accents that are not what we'd consider an American accent. There's Mm -hmm. um, Sorsha's from Scotland. Yeah. uh, Flo Pew, if you will, is um, is from the UK as well, is and then really? Eliza is from Australia, I believe, and mm. um, and then Emma Watson's also from the UK. None mm. of them have American accents, and yet there's only one where you can tell, you know. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know about um, Florence Pugh or Eliza. That's crazy, um, but yeah. So I just I feel like that's like the one thing that, and like luckily she doesn't have a lot of screen time. But, like, I feel like the character of Meg in general is sort of overlooked in this movie for the most part. And then also just, like, with that in combination, like, I just feel like we don't get to understand Meg as a character as much as Amy or Joe. Yeah, and I think that that is, I think that's interesting because in the book, they are all important. Um, And I think that even in the movie, they're all important. But I think that, I don't know that the performance is necessarily as memorable as others. Mm-hmm. As um as some of the, like I think that Florence Pugh obviously like this was a huge movie for after uh, even after Midsummer Midsummer I don't know how you say it. but um but like I think that her and Sorsha have such phenomenal performances specifically that like um anything that's not up to their level it just doesn't feel it doesn't feel like it fits. I agree. I also though 
like along with the four sisters, I really like Timothy Chalamet in this movie. Yeah. I've really liked his acting ever since what was the first thing I saw him in. Ladybird? Was there something before that? Mm, was... I know that you were telling me that you loved him in Beautiful Boy. Yeah, that was last year. That's incredible. Uh Beautiful Boy, check it out. I probably won't talk about it, but he's a meth addict and it's great. <laughs> um <laughs> I think he was in, like, Interstellar back in, like, 2014, but he's barely in it, so that doesn't count. Anyways, um, he always, he just goes full in on the characters, um, mm-hmm. and, like, that's what makes him so good in Beautiful Boys, just because he genuinely feels so broken and, like, a meth addict, but in this movie, he, he just has this, like, vulnerability to him, especially when he's, like, talking to Joe in, like, the end scene where he's, like, trying to, like, propose to her, and it just feels very real. His acting, I I love. And so he, well, I have a special place for Timmy Boy anyway, because he played the MC in Cabaret 2 at LaGuardia. (laughs) I don't know if you do that. Um, But no, I just, I think that his acting is very, I think that him and Florence Pugh are very similar in that I I never feel like they're acting. Mm. Like, I feel like they are just whatever character they're portraying. Um, Which is why having the two of them in scenes together is so dynamic and interesting to watch. Yeah. And then, um, I mentioned it earlier, the last thing I don't really like, um, Bob Odenkirk just sort of shows up. So this is the one thing, I feel like the movie, for the most part, and we'll get to this in a second, but it doesn't necessarily care about what would be considered spoilers for the book, right? Like, it sort of starts off by saying, like, yeah, Joe and Lori do not work out, right? Well, I think, like, the book spends, like, half of the time about that, right? Yeah, I mean, like, well, just because it's in chronological order, yeah. like, a lot, you don't know that the dad's going to return from war mm-hmm. necessarily. You don't know that, oh, yeah, it's during the Civil War. That that yeah. makes, back to my earlier comment, <laughs> it's definitely during the Civil War, um, and I'm an idiot. Um, but, you yeah, know, there are a lot of things that you're just, you're not sure on, um, and you just, you're there watching and seeing as yeah. how things unfold. And that's where I was going with this, where I feel like that's the case for everything except for the whole plot about their dad. Because... It feels like they're trying to keep in this, like, oh, does the dad live or does he not live? Because Bob Odenkirk, despite being alive for all the scenes in the present, just does not show up until Beth's funeral. Like, he's just not in it until, like, in the present story, until, like, he suddenly shows up at Beth's funeral. And it just feels really weird that he's not in it until then. Well, right before Beth's death, he shows up in that, like, what I thought was a dream sequence. He shows up for the Christmas dinner. I thought that was when he returned home. Yeah, it might be when he returns home. Yeah, that's but... in, like, the past. That's what I'm saying. Like, they kept him hidden. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. It's, like, really weird that they keep him hidden. Um, especially because the casting of Bob Odenkirk is so weird. I mean, I don't know if you've seen Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, but he's, like... Like, that's, like, all I associate him with. Yeah, and, I like, can't see him outside of How I Met Your Mother. <laughs> yeah, like, and it just, like, this character for him feels very weird in this movie. Well, and I think he's such a talented actor, but part of that is that since he's such a talented actor, people see him very specifically as one role. Yeah. He also... Feel... Go ahead. I was just gonna say, like, he also, like, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it without it seeming mean. Bob <laughs> Odenkirk has a very distinctive look to him. You know what I mean? Like, he doesn't necessarily always look like a normal person. That sounds mean, but, like, you know what I mean, right? Yeah. So, like, when he, like, showed up, and it just, like, it felt very out of place. I don't know how to explain it. The mud and chops shocked me. That, that, yeah, that's definitely part of it. It was, yeah. I was not ready for them. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, yeah. So, I have not read the book, so I feel like you may be able to talk about this a little bit better, but the movie itself seems to serve as a commentary on the book and all of the other adaptations, especially the other adaptations. And... Um, a lot of that comes through in the ending, but also just sort of the themes that are being reinforced throughout the course of the movie. So, how do you think this compares to the book itself? Like, on its own? Um, it feels very similar to, and I haven't read the book in forever, um, because now it's been a whole quarantine ago. But, um, I, I feel like it is very similar to the book. They're, they're anecdotal pieces of the um, plot that are in the book that obviously didn't make it into the movie, which happens every time there's a book uh, that's adapted into a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but from the very first scene in the book, the first scene in the book is Christmas morning. Um, and so when they're all hanging out around the fire and they're waiting for Marmy to come home and they're just talking and it starts with like, it's off like, um, like it's no fun being poor or whatever um, mm-hmm. they say during that. Um, that though that exact dialogue is from the book it is taken from the book and adapted to be made into something that um four people can say and say realistically um but just like from that alone you can tell like it is it's very much like the book where louisa may alcott just had kind of this ear for how dialogue really should sound and i feel like that's the one thing that can always take you out of a book is whether the dialogue sounds like people talking or it sounds like dialogue and it sounds like a family talking. It sounds very real and very natural. And then I think that Greta Gerwig just kind of built on top of that. And where in a book, you can't really have people interrupting each other. Uh, Greta Gerwig took this very naturally written dialogue um, and transformed it and made it even more natural by having people interrupt each other and by having people speak over each other. Um, and I think that I think that it stays very true to the book while still serving as something new that that needed to be made like it doesn't feel like it's unnecessary because it is an adaptation but it also um i forgot what i was saying like halfway through that i don't know if you could tell uh, but yes those words from before okay so <laughs> i think this movie is really interesting to look at because i feel like it's a direct commentary on all the adaptations that we've already had of little women and i mean i said before this is the seventh movie i think we also got multiple TV shows and a Broadway play and an opera and a musical and animated cartoons and, like, even recently, like, a limited series and then another limited series that's supposed to be modern. And, like, there's been tons of adaptations. But the two things that they have always done is they're always chronological and they always have the same ending as the book. And this is where I think the movie is really doing something interesting because the first part is this change in directing where we are comparing the joyfulness and innocence of their childhood with like the realities of adulthood and like the isolation and loneliness that comes along with it. And I think that is incredibly powerful because it's almost like conveying that like the story of the book is so overtold at this point, like you understand the emotions of all the scenes, but it's the scenes being compared with each other that really, like, brings out new emotion because you're able to sort of, like, realize the difference that it's trying to emphasize, you know? Yeah, and I think one thing is that when people are watching a story, we tend to lose lose out on some of the nuances of empathy. And one thing that actors focus on, and I think Greta Gerwig had to focus on very specifically for this, is that 
because it's it's a story of like they say at the end it's a story of domestic troubles um or of domestic life and so it doesn't feel like there's anything high stakes happening mm-hmm. but when whenever you're living a life you your your sense of self and your sense of risk and your sense of stakes are all dependent on your life and they adapt mm-hmm. and so for the characters in the story everything feels very high stakes and it also is important that the reason that I feel like the scenes are being juxtaposed is that we as people carry the baggage and memories from before and we're very much affected by them. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, having the scene specifically, just cause we keep going back mm-hmm. to this one, I'll talk on it again. Um, having the scene of Joe running downstairs and seeing Beth at the table with Hannah and Marmy, and then going directly into the one where we uh, find out that she's that, uh, Beth has passed it's not like we're like sitting there like oh it's like it's very similar joe would be running down those stairs with feeling the hope of knowing that last time this happened beth was alive but also feeling the dread of knowing it's probably not going to be the same which is why it's so impactful for the character of joe and i'm sure it's something that sorcia ronan was able to build off of i agree i think in general the movie or at least like i feel like the book and all these other adaptations almost what you're saying but in reverse they like they try and give stakes to everything unnecessarily and it sort of loses the impact of other things because at least from my understanding a lot of the first part is spent on like oh who's gonna end up married who will end up with who and that whole idea but like the movie tells you straight up from the beginning like joe and laurie are not together right and it tells you like meg is married and like all this sort of stuff like straight from the beginning and so instead we're able to see like how they got there and see that progression and, like, compare their lives as opposed to being, like, you know, more invested in that side of the story, which I think is, it's just such a different take on it that I feel like it's more impactful than all these other adaptations. And that's something interesting that I had never thought about is that when Joe goes home for the first time in the present, mm-hmm. um, when she goes back to visit Amy and take her to the shore, I hadn't thought that, I hadn't thought of it, and it's, you're completely right that that takes place after Lori confesses his love to Joe and Joe turns him down. And I just, I had never really realized that like, that is showing that Lori and Joe don't end up together. Mm-hmm. And even still, when you're watching it, you feel the hope that they might. And I think that's yeah. really interesting. I hadn't thought that through. Yeah. And then I feel like the thing though, that this movie is really doing and really bringing to the table in terms of every other adaptation is the change to the ending, right? Yes. Because yeah. the book, about that yeah (laughs) the book along with every other movie ends with her and friedrich getting married right i believe so and this movie does not do that um they have the same um so okay so first off there's this video i watched it's very good at um explaining this i'll probably put a link to it in the description of this if i can who knows um (laughs) But basically what he does is he literally compares, like, the same exact scenes from the different movies and shows, like, the change that Greta Gerwig is bringing to them, basically. And so a lot of these scenes are using the same exact dialogue, right? As you said, like, they're literally taken from the book. And this scene, though, does something different where they play the same exact scene where, like, they get, they meet each other in the rain and they kiss, except then it cuts to the editor, right and he was like oh it's such a great ending and then joe is just like no like she's like talking the entire time about not getting married why would she suddenly get married like it doesn't make sense i have nothing to give but my heart so full and and these empty hands no 
not empty now. Oh, Lord, dearest. And these empty hands. Not empty now. Oh, Joe. But I have nothing to give you. My hands are empty. Not empty now. My hands are empty. They're not empty. I love it. It's romantic. It's very moving. That's very emotional. Uh, because, like, in this version of the story, it's all the events of Joe's book that she's, like, talking about, basically, right? <laughs> and it's, like, I think this is a testament to Louisa May Alcott, the, like, original author, who herself never got married. And a lot of fans of the book theorized that this was changed because her editor made her change it. And so uh, I really like this ending and the way it serves as a commentary on these adaptations that are trying to adapt the story, but in staying so true to the book, I feel like they actually lose the significance of and the importance of that ending being the way it is. That's very interesting. Oh, wow, I love that. Um, yeah, <laughs> I had never really thought that through, but I mean, because I think that does take it from being rather than just being true to the story, I, I, rather than being true to the book necessarily, they're being true to the story and they're mm -hmm. being true to the context because Louisa May Alcott was this genius and specifically for her time, she was so accomplished. And, um, and like she's become since, she's become like this household name for a book that every young woman has read now. Mm -hmm. um, even without this recent film adaptation, everyone has read. And I think it's so incredible that they're kind of giving light to just what her story was rather than just what the stories she wrote were yeah absolutely and i feel like that really plays into greta gerwig's overall point of this adaptation and the thing that makes it stand out so much which is that this movie in general it seems to be reactionary to both the book and the movies that have come before it rather mm -hmm. than simply just trying to retell this like timeless story right because it would have been very easy for her to go in and make the same exact movie, you know, have the same actors and everything, and just sort of put all the scenes in chronological order and have the ending the same and move on from it, right? All those pieces are already there. But it's that extra step of showing how we can, like, elevate this past all the other adaptations and still have it bring out, like, new emotion and to make you realize new things about the story that I think makes this such a good movie. Well, and it's a story that is not bound by time mm -hmm. you know yeah, like absolutely. it still feels very relevant that's still how siblings interact those are still feelings and thoughts that people have um like yeah. it feels like it, it feels very modern because i feel like greta gerwig allows it to feel modern while still keeping it in the context of its time i agree and frankly one thing about it that stands out is the fact that so many of the issues that the women are facing are still prevalent today yeah which is just like, watching that, to me, was, like, it really puts in context how little we have progressed yeah. since this time. Which is terrifying. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, no, I, I, it's very interesting. And it's something where um, I, I think that they kind of um, allude to that when Marmy is giving that man who comes in to, um, 
that building just to mm-hmm. be as generic as possible. <laughs> um, um, when she's giving that old man whose sons had died in the war yeah. and one was a prisoner, yes. uh, like providing him with whatever charity and clothes or whatever, um, I believe a blanket and yeah. her scarf. Um, and she's working with a uh, black woman mm-hmm. who, uh, and she says to Marmy, like, I've, um, like, I used to be so, like, disappointed by my country. And uh, the black woman says, uh, no offense, man, but you still should be. Mm-hmm. And it's something that it still holds true. Like, we, we and it, I mean, it's been very prevalent now, but we all, um, those of us that are, um, that have any kind of privilege assume that everything has gotten better since the time, um, since the past. And that's not necessarily the case, you know? Yeah. So to conclude for this movie, Jack, what are your final thoughts on it? I love it. Um, I don't know. What, um, I don't know. Do Would you like to talk about the costume design? <laughs> sure, one costume design. I'm not sure it deserved it. Um, it's... <laughs> like, I don't know who else I would give it to as the thing, but, like, it feels like we've done 18th century dresses before. Agreed. I think that the one thing that's interesting about this, and Greta Gerwig talked about it a little bit, is that um, we've everyone has seen period pieces and we've seen these beautiful extravagant dresses before. But the one thing that this movie changes is that whenever we think of the 1800s, we think of um, we think of like it being kind of like sepia because that's what the pictures are. So we think of everything being very bland. But in reality, this is right after different pigments and dyes had been discovered. And so, uh, like, the, a lot of the clothing is very bright, and it's more true to just historically what happened rather than how we picture it, which I think is interesting. That's all I have to say. That is really interesting. I mean, yeah. Personally, okay, so I'm looking at the nominees. We have Joker, The Irishman, Little Women, Jojo Rabbit, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think we've talked about this before, but I think I would actually give the Oscar to The Irishman for the reason of the movie takes place over, like, 30 years or something like that and it never tells you how time is progressing the only ways you see it are through the actors literally aging because they de-aged all of them and through the change in clothes over time and so that's sort of like contextual clues that are built in without like telling the audience about them that still like are able to show things which i think is really cool however little women at the same time i think does costume design really well for what you're saying but also because the costumes of when they were little and when they're like grown up are different and it sort of like gives you more context clues in the same sort of way about what's the past and what's the present because we talked about like it's almost it like at times it's hard to differentiate between them yeah and i mean there's also the nuance of the um and i just read this and i i was thinking about it during the movie and i just love it is that um the hair and the costumes they uh for marmy they built her hair and costumes they took pieces of each girl's hair and they took pieces of each girl's color palette for their costumes and they put them all together which is how they made marmy because marmy is a combination of all the girls just as much as the girls are the, the product of uh, marmy that's really interesting i didn't even notice that that's really cool um yeah i mean i think i think we've covered everything overall it's a very good movie um not many people saw it, which is probably because it's not really available anywhere. Oh um, my! But no yeah, I don't know. I I mean, I would recommend it. Like I've told people to watch it. Not many people yeah. have, but I mean, oh well. 
it's Ethan's yeah. favorite movie. If you know anything about Ethan, that'll be surprising. So that alone <laughs> is a reason to watch it. Aiden Baby Driver. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Jack. Yeah, thanks for having me, Cobes. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Do you want to plug your Insta or anything like that? Oh, I mean, sure, you guys can follow me. I think it's at underscore Jack Rosenberg, J-C-K-R-O-S-E-N-B-E-R-G. Um, I don't, that might be it, who knows, but sure, follow, enjoy. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Jack is also listed as the producer for all of my episodes. I don't really know why, but he just helps a lot, so that feels right. But it's yeah, good. <laughs> uh, thank you for listening. Uh, bye. Bye. Um, yeah. Give me one second. Sean will not stop calling me. <laughs> Enjoy. God, it's Sean. I am recording. Sean, no. God. Hi, Sean. Why, God? Why this way? Okay. <sighs> okay. We'll get back into it. Luckily, he's not really interrupting much. Um, oh my god, I just cracked my neck so well. Oh, <laughs> I heard nope. it. That was nice. We'll keep that in. We'll throw all this <laughs> in after the credits have rolled. Absolutely. A little treat for everyone. This episode of Cinema Critique was written and edited by Kobe Davenport. The producer is Jack Rosenberg. Our theme was written and performed by Danny Seligman, and the cover art for the podcast was created by Matt Gallagher.